to episode 144 of The Winning Agenda. My name is Jesse Marshall, and joining me today is, as ever, my lovable Byroid friend, Wilfred A. Horrig. How are you, Wilfie? Yeah, we won't uh, think about that one too hard now that I have another title, which I'm sure everyone is sick of hearing by now. And that title is, of course, 2017 World Champion. Well done, Wilfie. Yes, thank you. Um, We'll limit the applause to maybe five seconds. We'll be silent so the listeners can applaud. Yeah, good. Uh, So this is the first time that Wilfie and I have uh, had a chance to sit down and record the podcast with just the two of us together since Worlds. And we thought we might just go through a little bit more uh, uh, sort of pre-world stuff and then turn our gaze pretty squarely to post-worlds because, you know, it's a month on now and, and we need to move forward from there. Um, but, you know, before we leave the, the excitement of worlds behind, what we thought we might do is try and share something which we thought might be useful for you guys, which is to talk about our testing process. Yeah, and that's something that we've done quite extensively in the past. It's been a perennial topic over the years, not only as tournaments are coming up, but after tournaments as a sort of post-tournament recap is how did we test how did our testing process go and was it successful even if the results necessarily weren't weren't necessarily successful we can still look at the testing independently of that and that's i think a good lesson and why is it that you think wilfie that we spend so much time talking about testing there's a few things that you can say on the tournament itself you know everyone has sort of knows to you know, make sure your decks are prepared, drink lots of water and stuff like that. But the vast majority of your time spent preparing for a tournament or the vast majority of your time spent in the tournament space is preparing for a tournament rather than playing it, even if playing it is, in the end, more important. Mm. Because everybody has the same amount of time that they spend in their actual rounds, the biggest advantage that you can gain is by spending more time preparing. Exactly, but not necessarily more time preparing, just time preparing better, I think. Mm. And so we've spoken in the past about the sort of gauntlet model of testing that you get together a range of different decks, and this is, of course, something that is by no means... something that we've innovated. It's something that's been around as long as competitive card games have been around, which is that you get together a bunch of the best decks, you test whatever deck you think is good against them, you test those decks against each other, um, and you come up with some conclusions about the format. Yeah, and the point is, from that, a couple of major things. The first is that in a tournament, you're going to play against a wide range of decks, so it's important that no matter what you end up taking, you have practice against those decks. Second is that it's very easy to get tunnel-visioned on one deck that happens to do well like one day or one week and maybe decide that that's good without it necessarily having the results to back that up in testing. So by sort of spreading your time amongst different decks, even if you're not super likely to play them, you get a better feel of how good they are compared to each other. And I mean, you're comparing the different choices you can take to a tournament against one another. That's the main purpose of trying to work out what to decide to play. For a tournament. And is there something to be said for being experienced playing with a deck and therefore finding out its weaknesses? Yeah, exactly. Like, so much of the time is spent trying to work out what your game plan should be against the common decks, that a, one of the best way to, ways to do that is to play with those decks and be like, okay, in these sort of situations, I find it really hard to win. So maybe as the other side, in a playing against that specific deck, I should try and push my opponent into that sort of position. And that is something that I think we can confidently say, having tested across multiple formats in this game for a very long time, really always comes out of testing and is very hard to come up with off the top of your head without actually playing with decks. Yeah, I think that's probably the most important factor when preparing for a tournament is to make sure that when you sit down, you at least have some idea what you're going to do. And also have some idea what your opponent is going to want to be doing. Exactly. So those two things sort of interlace with one another, I think. Absolutely. So uh, the model that we sort of take to enable us to time efficiently do this is to bring together ourselves and some other people to form a team um, to enable us to play these different decks and report back to act as sort of a hive mind so that not 
every single one of us needs to play every single deck to get that intel. Exactly, and that's one of the better ways in which you can deal with the problem that, of course, you only have limited amounts of time, much less time than you really need to get a good gauge of every single deck in, and every single matchup. And so what did we decide were the main decks that we wanted to test, say, a month out? And how did those change? Hmm, a month out. So that would have been... Was that before Malaysian? Like before any tournaments have been played with Core? Um, or Let's say when we were... Once we had the format. Yeah, So okay. once we knew what the format was going to be. <laughs> I think the first yeah. deck that we built was a Foundry deck. <laughs> yep. Um, and why did we build that? We built that because we wanted to see how the pre-rotation Moons deck could survive post-rotation. And the Foundry seemed like, while not the greatest identity in the game, and I'm sure there'll be no disagreements there, even from diehard Foundry fans, we felt that it would be the most similar to the ETF identity in basically letting you replicate what you had before, which is the strongest corp deck pre-rotation in the post-rotation format. Um, and how did that turn out? Very bad. <laughs> the deck was horrible. <laughs> yeah, so that that pretty much left us feeling, I think, that there was no fair HB deck. So, like, no non-CI HB deck, put it that way, that was going to be able to play either an asset spam or you know, heavy asset, not necessarily asset, but heavy asset strategy, or a, or a mid-range strategy, particularly effectively. Right, but then again, uh, in a bit of a digression, it turns out that Moons was good <laughs> if you just put it in CI. Yeah. Um, so we sort of skirted around CI for a little while. Like we, we came to it pretty quickly after Malaysian Nationals, um, but in the meantime, I think we tried a few different things. So... Scorpius was one, um, uh, Jinteki. Like I was, I've been trying for a long time to resurrect this uh, aggressive um, biotech deck, um, and with Obercata and Ben Musashi, it seemed like a good time to try that. Yeah, so I think would. in the really early days, which was basically just after we got the list for Core Two, and yeah, what we worked out, the actual cards that were legal were going to be. We thought, so Scorpios doesn't lose that much, and you can play it a couple of different ways, and those decks were quite popular at Australian Nationals, which was the last tournament, as I said, that we played pre-rotation. So we sort of started with trying to make that work, and then, of course, it seemed obvious that, yeah, you wanted to do something with CI just because there were a lot of good HB cards, but where we really weren't sure yet. So that um, Scorpius list, I think, ended up probably losing out for a couple of reasons, and we sort of dropped that reasonably early, um, partly because of the popularity of SACCON on the runner side uh, and how good Tapworm was, uh, but also because a lot of the gotcha moments that you might be able to get with a snare or something else like that in Scorpius um, just seemed better in Jinteki to me. Yeah, and also I think sort of similar to the second thing, the idea of just actually being able to remove all the runners' programs just didn't seem likely given that criminals, I think we worked out pretty early, that just a generic good stuff criminal deck like has been good since the game started was just awful. Yeah, and, and that really, I mean, not to digress too far into why Wayland's not very good, I think Michael Boggs covered it really well in his last uh, chat with Team Covenant. He was talking about how a lot of Corp decks struggle to get their seventh point, and we all know that Wayland perennially gets stuck on five or six points. Um, and for those Scorpius decks, just like most other Wayland decks in history, if you don't get to that point where you've got this alternate win condition of removing all their breakers the chances of you scoring that 7th point are just pretty low. Yeah, so we tried some sort of Red Planet Couriers-y things for a bit in that, but just trying to make it all come together was very difficult, like always, really. And sure, while it didn't lose that much from rotation, I feel like it wasn't the best to begin with. 
Yeah, and and that really, if people out there are wondering what the difference between tier one and tier one point five and tier two is, it's not to say that a tier two deck is bad or that if you take it to a tournament you won't win games or you won't do well. Um, what we're trying to assess throughout this process is what deck is going to give us the best chance of winning the most games. And a deck like the Scorpius deck, while it could pull some games out of the bag, um, or it could just rush your oppo- the opponent out when they couldn't find their relevant breaker or whatever else, it didn't feel like it was consistently overpowering the opponent when things went well for the opponent. Yeah, and so with MBN, it was sort of the same thing from a different vantage point in that you had the skeleton of this CTM deck that had been good for a while, but just without basically the good cards that made it good like you could still sort of do the same strategy and it was successful at worlds but i feel like you and i think this came through at worlds as well that you would have to build a deck with a lot of meta calls and have them be right in order to make that sort of strategy successful just because the power level wasn't as high as it used to be and of course some people did that successfully and although we'd lost temujin uh through the uh, removed and restricted list and so corps were able to compete a little more with runners in economy and land some of those hard-hitting news traces it still didn't feel like hard-hitting news decks were good enough like it felt like runners had become good enough at playing around hard-hitting news or mitigating its downside that the chances of you being able to catch them with it and leverage it for game-winning advantage were pretty low. Yeah, it's a sort of five points thing again where it's the time that the corp has to really force the runner to run servers really diminishes as the game goes on. And I think the primary way to make hard-hitting news good is to try and make sure that window extends as far as possible, which... You can do, but you really have to devote your whole game plan to it. And we all know, uh, or one thing that we noted very early, and a lot of people did, was the loss of breaking news. And when we're talking about forcing the runner to make runs early and being able to leverage your hard-hitting news at a time that it's disadvantageous for the runner, having a threat like breaking news that creates a difficult fork for the runner is what we're talking about. And and not having that in the post-rotation world, I think, significantly diminished the power level of that deck. Yep, exactly. And so... Yeah, those were our kind of thinking maybe at the in the first couple of weeks or the first month. I can't really get a recall a of, of, the, of the exact timeline, but I think up until the first tournaments came out, we were still in the exploratory stage where not only did we not really know what was good, but the rest of the world didn't really know what was good or it hadn't been shown at least. Yeah, so we, we played around with um, I think Sync was a lot worse than CTM, um, and I'd been pretty much playing Sync for a year and a bit, um, including Last Worlds and Regionals this year. So I dropped that pretty quickly, um, sleeved up a CTM deck, and as we said, we played a few games through with that and dropped it You know, probably earlier than what it deserves, considering how it played out at Worlds, um, but it certainly wasn't factoring into our testing, I think, towards the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So we... I think the it, it did turn out pretty quickly that uh, CI was the corp elephant in the room, given how good the core cards were that could go in anything. And, of course, as we've said before, the fact that you can sit down from a CI opponent and really have no idea what their game plan is going to be until turn two or turn three, in which case it might be too late. And I think that at that point, for us, it became a case of trying to figure out what CI builds were out there so that we could do what we spoke about at the beginning of the episode, which is play with the decks to figure out what their strengths and weaknesses were in case A, we wanted to play them, or B, we came up against them. Yeah, so I think the first thing that we did was I found a brain rewiring deck. I played a random game in Kentucky and played against brain rewiring, which seemed to me like a very powerful strategy and one that was a good first level since... It was the kind of thing where if it was good and you didn't have a runner deck that was strong or that was prepared for it, it was very, very hard to win. And for, for those who haven't seen the deck, it, was, it came second at Worlds, um, or a version of it did, and it's basically using brain rewiring and show of force or contract killer to leave the runner with one card in hand and then 
deal them two meat damage. Yeah, so functionally, if you can get enough click-saving cards or biotic labors, you can get into a situation where you can score a 3-for-1 and a 4-for-2 agenda. Cool, and we played around with that and very quickly saw how powerful it was. Yeah, I think especially... And I think maybe Jinteki sort of overstated this fact a little bit just because especially at that point in time you were playing against mostly people who didn't know how good it was but it sort of made it a bit more obvious just how good it was against unprepared runners uh, and as time went on we developed a boom list as well uh, yeah so I think that came from the internet somewhere I don't recall where I, I think someone posted and then we worked on it a little so the, this main synergy is in that uh, between MCA austerity policy load testing and hard hitting news that if you can deprive them if you as the court can deprive the runner of the clicks on their turn after you hard hitting use them then they can't remove four, the four tags and they are left if you can remove two of their clicks with at least two so you can boom them yeah um, and so the other decks we tried yeah I think those were the main two CI decks and then the other decks we tried were NBN a little bit Wayland uh, not really although we did know that Gagarin was good for a while just because there had to be some good asset deck and a bit later on, it also came to uh, it also came to fruition that the AR enhanced security MB and Neurothub deck was good as well, which sort of was a fairly similar strategy. Mm. And I think that that was something we came across in the last couple of weeks after we dropped CTM to the wayside a little bit. That we all started remarking that AR enhanced security forks with Mumbad Virtual Tour were difficult for the good runners to deal with. Yeah. And so, yeah, we definitely thought that an asset deck was going to be good. Although I, I think it's worth pointing out with with Gagarin, and this is something that I think we were vindicated on, is that it's really difficult to play the time with that sort of deck. Yeah, um, it, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I tested against um, Sammy. Shout out to Sammy, who was um, one of the uh, players on our team who was helping us out, even though he didn't come to Worlds. And he was playing the Gagarin deck and really found it hard to close out games, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily a fault of going to time because I think you can play it fairly quickly, but just that you have so few threats that basically the runner has so much time to score seven points. If the runner can play around their hard hitting use, then as a runner you have so much time to score seven points that you can really just do whatever for mm. most of the game and still have a chance to win, even if their draw is very good as the cop. And it is worth pointing out, I think, that the threat of tour guide asset spam decks did make me shift the way I was building runner decks so it's not like we thought the deck was bad um, in fact we tr made some deck building concessions to that I think in, in the way that we designed our runner decks um, the so we, that was NEH and Gagarin and then we had the the Jinteki side of things and I mentioned initially that we there was a biotech deck that we tried to make work and I spent some time playing around with the data loop Ben Musashi over Carter Synergy and just never felt like it was strong enough on centrals um, to be able to pull that off in time on but, a remote. But that sort of took a few different forms, right? Like you were working on a few different things to try and make that good and yeah, I think we saw the power of over Carter fairly early. It was just where to put it to make it best. So then I tried it in an IG shell um, at a, a game night kit before we left for the US and it didn't do too well and uh, you know it was just something else that I was I was trying to, to leverage that power and again it just felt too weak on centrals um, so the thing that we ended up testing on the Genteki side as most people know was, was a PU deck and we'll have some videos in the next couple of weeks from our pre-worlds testing showing us playing a few of these decks I think Hard Hitting News Boom um, Brain Rewiring and, and PU uh, and we Settled on PU and, and went for a cheaper ice suite. So dropped the data loops, dropped the Ben Musashis. Uh, because I, I felt, and this is something that's been re replicated a few times, I think, throughout different tournaments that we've tested for, when you try and go for combos that are too, uh, involve too many cards, they just don't give you that consistency that a tier one deck needs. Yeah, and I think maybe we'll talk about that a bit later because that's also the point about CI, the yeah. different CIs. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about that now. I mean, sure. so I think CI is the last remaining <laughs> corp deck that we haven't really talked all that much about um, the CI that you ended up playing. Yeah, so 
I mean, I'm sure everyone knows by now, I've said a few times, I didn't really play that much with that CI decks, but the evolution of CI was, at the start, I decided I wanted to play CI for a couple of reasons. One, I thought that the ability to hide your game plan was really strong, um, much stronger than maybe people gave it credit for, given how impactful the early turns are nowadays in the game of Netrunner, especially turns one and two, what you do there can really decide your game especially from the runner's perspective since the runner has minimal inf- can have minimal information at that point about what the corp is trying to do and yeah i mean that was borne out a few times in testing well more than a few times really when you know i was playing a runner and i'd run on turn one and then they'd play hiding news and i'd just lose <laughs> so you know uh trial by fire I and guess. it's worth pointing out that at a few times in testing because of that um, you or Alex, shout out to Alex, who was, um, as we've spoken about before, someone else who was on our testing team, did come to Worlds and was instrumental in our testing. Um, one of us would play a CI deck that the other person didn't know which version it was, just to replicate that real tournament setting where that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why testing on Jintech is really good, I think, because it allows you to do that more easily. But yeah, so in terms of that, that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to play CI. I think the others were that yeah you just had a wealth of powerful strategies and i thought that if we didn't really know what runners were going to be good well maybe i'll say that another part of the gauntlet process is trying to get a lockdown on the format getting an idea of what we think the best decks are going to be but especially in such an open world as we mentioned a few times before we really have no guarantee that what other people are going to come up with is the same as the conclusions that we've drawn. And so I think that sort of steered me a bit more towards playing a deck where you could have multiple strategies because it was very possible that your opponent, like like if we thought that brain rewiring was the best CI, which we did for most of the time, but our opponent thought that hard-hitting news was the best CI, they're probably going to assume and they're going to probably have played the most games against hard-hitting news and they're going to play as though you're hard-hitting news even if you aren't, which is a huge advantage. And I think it's worth noting on the brain rewiring deck there in terms of um, linear strategies that one of the reasons that I kept chewing your ear off before Worlds about that I thought brain rewiring, rewiring wasn't the best deck is that when they had the tech you didn't necessarily have as good a backup game plan because I thought that MCN austerity policy was the most powerful threat that the CI decks had. Right, and I mean, that definitely factored into why I didn't play it in the end, but I suppose to make that come true, we had to come to the conclusion that other people would have realised that brain rewiring was good as well, which I think only really happened in the couple tournaments right before Worlds in addition to the Icebreaker. So there's a, I guess that segues into the pre, like the immediate pre-tournament preparation of talking to players and seeing what other people have heard about and what they think. That is hugely important in tournament preparation. Yeah. Should we talk about Runner a little bit? Yeah. Um, I just really quickly wanted to touch on the, the CI deck that you did end up playing because I think in even through um, Monarch of Servers and the Icebreaker we were sort of just deciding between hard-hitting news and brain rewiring and thinking that those were the two more, most powerful CI strategies and sort of... Uh, I certainly felt that brain rewiring was going to be too heavily teched against, wasn't playing MCI authority policy, wasn't a deck that I was going to play, and that hard-hitting news, while my initial testing results were amazing, had dropped off significantly because people knew about it to the point where I felt like it was probably tier two. Yeah, I think the main thing to come out of that was that every runner was going to have a plan against CI. Whatever their plan against CI was, it was going to probably involve either one of playing employee strike and doing that multiple times with the same old thing, playing clot and doing it multiple times with a clone chip or satcon, or playing information sifting and doing it multiple times with either mul- you know any number of things, Steve Cambridge, etc., and there was not going to be a single runner deck in the room that didn't do one of those three things, I thought. So having a deck like Brain Rewiring or Hunting News Boom, while they are definitely faster than the Stinson decks in terms of actually ending the game, the fact that you need to spend so many 
of your slots on cards that don't really fight what the runner is doing against you really makes it, I think, a bit worse if it's going to be public enemy number one, if CI is going to be public enemy number one. For sure. And so when Alex and I sat down and Alex had sleeved up this Stints and CI deck the day before um, Monarch of Servers, so a couple of days before Worlds, we spent the afternoon basically playing the Edward Kim deck that both Alex and I ended up playing at Worlds and a smoke deck that we had for our gauntlet against the Stinson deck and the smoke deck just got the floor wiped with it which was not uncommon by that point in the gauntlet testing because we thought that smoke was not great and it was tending to get uh, the floor wiped with it by most corp decks at that point Um, but the fact that it didn't even really have any game against this Stinson CI deck and would just get blown out by reversed accounts or blown out by whatever else just basically had no chance of winning and the edward kim deck which we felt had a pretty reasonable matchup against harding news boom or against brain rewiring if you didn't in the games the first few games we played where i didn't know exactly what alex was doing i just was not in the game at all um, and those are the games that i think most closely replicate what was going to come in the tournament uh so how how did you feel when you sat down let's Perhaps not talk about round one, but round two with the Stinson <laughs> CI deck. Um, or maybe we should talk about round one because, you know, as world champion, a lot of people would think, ah, uh, Wilfie is a perfect player and never makes mistakes. But I think it's important to touch on what happened in round one as a good example. Oh, yeah. So in round one, I, like, the deck is fairly complicated. And while it's not the most complicated in the world, like, you don't have to try and work out in 60 seconds how to power shut down loop your opponent, um, I did have an embarrassing situation where. I'm like, okay, I have reversed accounts sitting there, I have Stinson, everything's going to be okay, I have efficiency committee, and then I'm like, hmm, how many clicks do I need? Then I'm like, I can't, hmm, I can't really think about it, let's just efficiency committee, like, three times. At the start of your turn. At the start of my turn, so I have the maximum number of clicks, then think about it later, because, you know, who knows what could happen. I really don't want to end up, you know, being caught out by wanting to do something and not having an efficiency committee or miscounting my clicks or something. And then I tried to advance my reverse accounts, and of course my opponent it reminded me that you can't advance things with efficiency committee so of course I could have just advanced before using it and I would have won easily yeah um, so aside from that uh, how did you feel that the deck uh, played out against the runner field did you feel like they knew what was coming or did you feel like that shroud of CI secrecy in the first few turns really protected you yeah so it did definitely what I thought would happen happened which was for fortunate for sure in the sense that if they were planning to go low and have the opportunity to get stinsoned then they were usually doing that to set up ways to get into your servers which was good against hard hitting news and brain rewiring um even still hard hitting news you need to be able to access their servers at some point but against a deck like stinson where you have big ice and a way to punish the runner if they go low no matter at what point that is in the game and because you can redo it with reverse accounts that sort of try and get your breakers out as fast as possible and access as many cards as quickly as possible is really not the way to go um, and there were some I know we touched on this in our immediate post-worlds conversation but there were some turns in the finals where you were able to take enormously long turns and complex turns using MC austerity policy clicks, efficiency committee clicks, stints and reversed accounts. Um, did the amount of synergies there surprise you? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Ben Nee, shout out, made a video that said I took 14 clicks or whatever in one of the turns, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, like the deck is, was really good and it was a good choice. And I mean, we won't harp on too much about it since I'm sure everyone's heard a lot about it already, but just the way that it all came together sort of made it not only a very good meta choice given the constraints of I want to play a CI because of all its other advantages in playing that identity just regardless of what other cards you put with it combined with just the flexibility to leverage a different game plan based on what the runner was doing made that deck really strong. Yeah, and I think it's um, worth pointing out, and this is a, a good segue into our next topic, which is we're going to have a, 
after we do the run aside, we're going to have a very quick chat about the removed and restricted list and where it might be going in the future. Um, one thing we identified with the two CI builds that we thought were good before we came across the Stinson deck was that the ice suite was obviously really important. Um, and in order to give ourselves a chance to build remotes and to deal with runners that were just trying to clot lock you, uh, we thought that Fairchild 3 was a good choice for restricted card over GFI and that therefore we'd play Elective Upgrade um, in a lot of those decks. And that was the combination you ended up going with, as well as a lot of the sort of mid-range ice that we thought was the way to go. Um, I, we've sort of... I don't need to, I guess, ask you a question. I think it's just important to note that and that the the exact deck list that you ended up playing, you know, came from a concept that the Germans had. Mm-hmm. Alex put together a version. We all together worked on a list, and then you put together a list... Um, based on that but it it came from all these different sources Um, and i think that's the value of the testing process that not only did you know uh what 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 you were possibly going to face on the other side and everything we've already talked about in terms of the analysis and the metagame that we did um but you were also able to bring together um the intelligence that we'd all garnered independently you alex i and others externally about different CI builds and bring them together into one list. Yeah. Should we talk about the runner now? Yeah. Um, so I think this is probably worth talking about generally that Corps set the tone of metagames um, because they present the threats and runners have to respond to them, really. And while they can be overwhelming runner cards that make Corps unviable, you know, in a, in a format with Siphon, in a format with um, Temujin, certain things are not going to be viable. You're not going to be able to play low ice decks that rely on having money early in the game against Siphon, you're not going to be able to play Econ Warfare Corpse against um, Temujin. Um, whilst that is true, I think runners by necessity, by the nature of the game, have to be able to respond to court threats. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on that in terms of how you approach conceptualising building runner decks in an open format like what we had for Worlds? Yeah, so I think that meant that we wanted a runner deck that can deal with a wide variety of threats that wasn't necessarily locked into one game plan. And of course, it's good to have multiple game plans regardless. Like, no matter what deck you're playing, you want to have the chance to deal with a wide variety of threats on the other side. And that means, basically, by necessity, having the opportunity to do multiple things in a game. And I think uh, both of us, by the nature of the runners we'd like to play prefer to be in every game rather than just playing very linear runners that sometimes overpower corps. I think those sort of tend to be the decks we've traditionally gravitated towards. Yeah, and I think in general those decks for a large proportion of the net runner time have been the better ones. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some exceptions like DLR that was obviously good for a period, but um, I think there were other options at that time anyway that you could play as a quote-unquote fair deck. <laughs> Um, so if you're going to play a runner deck that has some game against really fast decks and against really slow decks, what are some of the hallmarks of that for you? What do you look for? Yeah, so I think the most important cards in runner decks are economy, like ways to draw cards and ways to generate credits. Like I feel like you can really put any sort of ways to break ice and any tech cards, but it, it's your card draw and your credit generation that really defines how you're going to interact with the corp and so on a basic level then for the three main factions at the time of world's preparation how did you feel they stood on that key issue so we'll uh rather unfortunately talk about criminal first i guess yeah um criminal has no good ways to draw cards and no good ways to generate money so that sort of uh, made them bad from the beginning of course yeah geist has was good because it really didn't fit in the criminal mold it sort of was had a very specific game plan and i think the geist decks that did do well executed that well along with sort of the shroud of not really your opponent not really knowing how the tempo of your game is going to work in terms of criminals still we tried some steve cambridge uh fisk and information sifting like investment seminar and information sifting i think that was the it was solidly tier two yeah i think so and some things with apocalypse like basically you really need to cheese them out (laughs) if you're going to win with criminal you need to find one thing that you could do that was actually powerful and because you know criminals still did have 
good ha- have okay recursion now, which I guess is a bit strange to say, but yeah, bad econ but decent recursion. Yeah, that's not what you expect. Definitely not, but that actually turned out to be okay. But and Leela obviously also has a decent matchup against the CI combo decks, which was something we had in the back of our minds. True, yeah, you can play Leela, I think, with those sort of strategies in addition to Steve, but in terms of what you actually wanted to do, you really couldn't survive trying to break ice the regular way as mm. a criminal. And the card draw issue for someone like Leela against a court metagame that was pretty fast was just always going to be too much of an issue, I think, for it to be Tier 1. So as we moved past Krim reasonably quickly, though we did have some criminal decks floating around in our spreadsheet. Um, Shaper, we went to a sort of smoke list initially, mm-hmm. um, and then you had a Haley list. Yeah, so the smoke list, I mean, we've all heard on the internet about how you know people thought that smoke was going to be the big thing, but the corp metagame didn't really turn out that way, because the best smoke cards are the things that let you break ice. And the cards that actually help you win at the moment are not the cards that help let you break ice. It's the tech cards that you have to play that have an inordinate effect against one particular deck or one particular strategy, and you can find those as quickly as possible. And that's, you know, the reason I play the Haley deck in a nutshell. And I think we were very surprised when we turned up at Worlds and we heard a lot of players who we respected a lot saying that they thought Smoke was the best runner deck, not even just the best shaper deck. Um, I was certainly really surprised because it was at least a couple of weeks since we decided that smoke wasn't very good at all. Yeah, like we could, we tried putting any combination of tech cards, but your economy is just really not set up to do that since you rely on Netmerka. So when we decided that Netmerka wasn't actually good, it sort of made a drop off our radar a lot. Uh, and then on the Anarch side, we all tested the Edward Kim deck pretty heavily, and really the main and only draw card to Edward Kim was what we perceived was a, a better-than-average CI matchup. Yeah, so the main things that define the Anarchs, I think, are having Inject, Street Peddler, iPad Wars as your draw, Inject and Street Peddler both put cards in the bin, and having Conspiracy Breakers. Those two things together let you draw lots of cards at once, and Conspiracy Breakers, while of course they might not be the most efficient by themselves, having the ability to only install them at instant speed means you can actually contest the corp a lot of the time when you couldn't usually with regular Anarch Breakers. And runners in general, I think, lost so much econ from rotation that the idea of being able to install all three of your main breakers before making runs and face-checking ice was just not possible. Yeah, and I mean, that was sort of the smoke problem as well, that to an extent you needed to do that. Yeah, and so for Anarchs, you really had to rely on the Conspiracy Breakers, and a lot of players, to their credit, I think in the Icebreaker and at the main event recognize that and put punishment cards in their deck for conspiracy breakers knowing that a significant portion of the field was going to be playing them yep and if you were playing anarchs yeah the conspiracy breakers were going to be your main sweet you had no other choice basically and so we saw arc lockdowns floating around in various different decks that did pretty well yeah i mean you could there was the mars combo deck like you could play god of war but that was sort of a different thing and we actually uh, i tested that for a little bit but i just couldn't get it to work if your opponent knew what you were doing just because your without siphon your resource generation just doesn't work there's no point at which you can actually get the corp into a position where you can start snowballing to a victory you sort of have to hope that by the time you can generate enough tags to counter surveillance them they haven't won yeah and i saw more than zero games where a counter surveillance deck would use their last counter surveillance not hit winning agendas and pretty much just lose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that sort of turned out to be what we thought the runner metagame was going to be, and I think that was pretty spot on. Like, it, we thought that it was going to be Shapers and Arts mainly. I mean, most people came to that conclusion. We thought that we probably placed a bit more store on the Kim um, and employee strike choice mm-hmm. than a lot of other testing groups did. We thought that that was a really important way for us to be able to contest CI as yeah. Anarchs. Yeah, and I think that mostly came from the weakness... Two things. One, the weakness of the Conspiracy Breakers to the Mythic Ice, which a lot of the CI decks had in some quantity, Yeah, as well as the 
inability for the CI decks to slot a large number of currents in the deck to deal with employee strike. Like they, the especially the brain rewiring and the hard hitting news lists, you're really stuck on slots already because you needed to dedicate so many slots to the combo. And even the Stinson deck, you know, you ended up only playing one current just because it didn't help your game plan that much against non-employee strike decks. Mm. And I certainly found in testing that as time went on and I played more and more against hard-hitting news boom decks and brain rewiring that I was learning the right moments to play the employee strike and the right ways to hurt the corp, um, the right cycles in terms of their MCA austerity policies to be trying to disrupt them. Um, and I was, I was feeling a lot more confident with the Kim deck by the time the tournament came around than when we started. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not that dissimilar to the Valen- the Comrades deck that the, uh, a lot of the Americans ended up playing. Um, and in terms of the conclusions about Anarch, I think that those were mostly the same, apart from the employee strike thing. That's the main difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the, the Shaper side, we saw a lot of Haley decks. Um, and, I mean, a few, but not many smoke decks towards the top tables. Yeah, so the reason I decided to play the Haley deck, as I think I've said before, is just because it had the tools to deal with a lot of different corps because we didn't know exactly what corps were going to be good. I wanted to have the opportunity to have a deck where you could actually build your deck such that you can find your one tech card, which is very impactful in a certain matchup, fairly early and have it have the economy to use it over the course of the game. So something like Hunting Grounds, Feedback Filter, Clots with Saccon, all of those can be instrumental in certain matchups. But of course, if you never find it or you don't have the resources to use it when you do find it, it drastically reduces its effectiveness. So I decided that the Haley deck was the best shaper and I think we decided that fairly early and the reason I played it was because I wanted that sort of deck going into that sort of field. Cool, and um, yeah, it obviously worked out pretty well. Well, yeah. So uh, I think that probably caps off most of the elements of our testing and, and the analysis that we had of the metagame that led us to play the decks we did. Um, it's probably worth mentioning, yeah, thanks to Alex, John, and Sam, who were our testing team buddies. Yep, and they were instrumental in you know our process, and they all did work in terms of finding decks for us to play, playing decks, not just, you know playing the decks that they liked but also with the gauntlet format it's essential that you play a wide variety of things so that was really impactful and also should we talk maybe briefly about how we set up the spreadsheet just in case someone wants to do the same kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah so um we each had a, a tab on the spreadsheet and we put in basically the decks that we thought were worth adding to the gauntlet um in full deck list format uh, so that you know everyone could go off and play some decks with that if, uh, some games with it if they wanted to on Jinteki or, or in person. And then once we'd narrowed it down a little bit and had some conversations among the group, we had a group Facebook chat channel. Um, you could use obviously whatever communication tool you you uh, enjoy the most. Um, once we'd narrowed it down a little bit and decided on a few decks each that we thought were the better ones from the ones we'd contributed to the gauntlet, we started recording individual game results against those decks. Um, so, or rather with those decks. So each of us ended up with, for the decks that we were championing, I suppose, within the gauntlet, um, a large sample size of game results against different opponents. Yeah, and I mean, it is important to say, I think, that game results don't mean everything. Like, of course, you're never going to have enough time to get a full picture of everything, but at least if you share information between multiple people, you'll each get your own slice and then hopefully you have a whole pie or whatever. And I think uh, that was really helpful. And also over time, we could see the evolution of results as we became more familiar with decks, as the meta at large became more familiar with decks that we were trying. You know, some decks start to struggle and their, their win-loss ratio started to taper off. Some things we would make changes and then the win-loss ratio would increase. Um, and we, you know, it's not just, as you say, about results, it's also about how you feel in the games um, and how, as I was saying at the very beginning of the episode, in the discussion about Tier 1 versus Tier 2, how well you feel you go in decks where things go well for your opponent. In games. Yeah. In games, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so that's probably covered off most of our, our gauntlet testing. Uh, we did want to touch on the MWL, um, in particular what we think some of the changes will be that come out of the world's metagame and how it ended up being. Um, so I guess the more important side of it in a lot of ways, metagame, from a metagame perspective, was the restricted list uh, because everyone had a restricted card or had access to one um, and the choice of restricted card really shaped a deck and shaped a lot of its matchups at Worlds. Um, so, Aesops, how did, how did you feel that performed? And, and do you think what do you think the future is for Aesops on the restricted list? Yeah, so Greg Tong, who came second, and then, uh, shout out, because he then won the second chance Simhack tournament, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> um, he had a Locke Haley deck that used Aesops, and I thought that... And going back to Haley a little bit, the fact that the Lock Haley deck was still so good, even though they restricted a lot of cards sort of solely to make it a bit yeah. worse, like Aesop's Clone Ship, Levy, and Film Critic especially, um, means that I'm probably a bit skeptical about this coming off, given how well it did. But the at least the lists that I had wouldn't I think have utilized pawn shop that well like you would really have to build around it a bit more so I could see it coming off if another Haley centric card were to go on um how about clone ship that was a favorite of the UK players I think in terms of their restricted card in their Haley decks but I didn't see it too widely yeah so I think that clone ship is should probably stay on the restricted list one because of its overall power level like the ability to splash it in decks might... Although, I think... I, I do say that, but I think now that Criminal really needs a boost and Anarch has Conspiracy Breakers, that actually isn't so much of an issue nowadays. True. It's more how it impacts Shaper. Um, but I still think the card is powerful enough that I wouldn't want to see it off unless something else that did a similar thing also went on. I certainly miss that. I wouldn't mind seeing it unrestricted, but yeah, I can I can see why it's there. Um, Employee Strike was one that featured heavily in our gauntlet uh, and featured reasonably heavily at the tournament. Was very important. I probably would not like to see it unrestricted for the mere fact that I think it is the sort of card that you should pay a price to play. Yeah, one in, while it is one influence, it is a fairly low one influence to have such a wide effect on the various corp strategies like corps at the moment are very and this has been the case for a while are very dependent on their idea ability and yeah sure you might say something does need to be done to combat CI but I don't think it should be this yeah there's a lot of collateral damage uh, Film Critic again I think it answers too much in the metagame and too much in the game in general for it to be unrestricted I think it's the perfect card to have on the restricted yeah list. Film Critic and Employee Strike are similar in that yeah, while they are good in one specific situation, they're also just ge- generically extremely strong cards. Uh, Gang Sign is one that some people were surprised to see on there, but I think punishing do-nothing Leela decks was worthwhile, or do-nothing criminal decks in general. Yeah, although now criminal does need something, I think. I'm not sure that's this, just because, yeah, it's perfectly reasonable to say we don't want you to be able to win without ever running I think that might be the primary reason that's on there yeah but I think something to boost criminal would be good um and I guess it's worth pointing out with gang sign that it's just so different post rotation like not having Jackson Howard and the fact that more agendas are likely to end up in HQ and more corps are likely to end up flooded means that it can be pretty much impossible for some corps to actually win through gang sign HQI um inversificator is another one that I think is of a high enough power level and when it's combined with some of these other cards on the list is probably too much of a risk to have off the list. That's true, but we did say that, you know, installing your breakers before you run was really not good at Worlds and hasn't been good for a little bit. And I think Inversificator might be one way to solve that problem just because it's a powerful icebreaker that you can utilize on its own. Mm. Um I mean, yeah, it is very strong, but I'm not sure that the decks that it would be best in, that is to say, kit decks that want to run a lot mostly, like, it, yeah, it is good as just a Gordian Blade replacement, but I think 
in the situation where it's very, very good in those kind of decks. I think those decks don't aren't necessarily tearing up the metagame without it, and it could enable them to be good. Perhaps. I think it's like Gang Sign for me, though. It's, it's a style of play that invalidates the corpse cards. You know, it says, I get to choose where your ice are, not you. And it's hard enough for corpse to place their ice effectively anyway since the runner has the choice of where to run. If the runner has the choice of where to run as well as where the ice goes... I think it just tears at a fundamental sort of premise in Netrunner. I don't really like that. I guess so. I could see that being the case. Like, um, I think it's fairly low cost to have it on the list because, yeah, it, you could can still play it if you want to. Uh, Levy was your restricted card of choice at Worlds. Um, how do you rate its chances of uh, coming off the list? Mm, I'd say low. Like, Levy is a unique enough effect, and we've seen that... The decks that want Levy really want to play Levy. Like, they're willing to give up a lot just to have the deck-building ability to have a card like Levy in your deck. So taking it off, I think, just makes those decks much better, given that it was already widely played. And do you think the listeners deserve to know that when you play Levy in testing, you say, I'll cast Time Twister? (laughs) Um... No. Okay. I think we will edit that bit out. <laughs> and uh, Magnum Opus. Uh, yeah, Magnum Opus is a card that I think, one, it's seeing a lot of play even on the restricted list, and two, if it were to be unrestricted, it would make those sort of sit there and take eight decks better, which might not necessarily be the best thing. So it's probably okay to stay on there, even if I do think it's one of the weaker cards on the restricted list. I agree that's one of the weaker ones. Um, I also agree that I wouldn't necessarily like to see Take 8 decks get any better, um, just from a corp diversity perspective. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy for it to be on there. Um, let's go to the removed side for runners, since we're talking about runners. I I would not like to see any movement here, and I, we don't need to go through them card by card. Is there anything that jumps out at you there as... R- that you would like to see come off? Mm, I don't know. I think this is definitely more dangerous. And, like, when I'm thinking about coming off, I'm thinking moving from removed to restricted, yep. definitely. Um, I think looking at the list, Blue, Moose, Rumor Mill, and Sifa could come off, move to restricted, but I think it would be a bit of a PR nightmare if those cards were to be good again, given how the removed and restricted list was created and was sold. So... I think it's pretty safe to leave them all on there. Yeah, and I think they all belong to a power level of cards that are not in the game yes. at the moment. Yes. Yeah. Sifa um, may be less so without Parasite, but it still just messes with numbers that probably shouldn't be messed with. Uh, on the corp side, the restricted cards, I think we can probably package up Bioethics, Mumba Temple, Museum, and Estelle Moon as a sort of asset spam of various kinds. Yeah, so those decks have been really good for a lot of Netrunner, and I think the choice of having to play those cards in your asset spam strategy or have an agenda that is... Like, if you're going to play those cards, your agenda suite has to be weak, and your agenda suite is where those decks often fall flat because if your opponent has to steal you know, only three agendas and can do so easily, it's a lot harder if when you're drawing lots of cards with an asset deck, you have or to you give... have more lightly defended R&D. Yeah, you have to give yeah. the runner more accesses. So I think that's a really smart decision and I probably wouldn't like to see that messed with. Um, and that's a good segue into GFI and Global Food Initiative and Oba Carter Protocol, both of which are agendas that are the other side of that equation, i.e. you don't want people to be able to play these agendas with those other restricted cards. So I think that means they probably have to stay on the list. Yeah, I think so too. I think, yeah, Hunter Seeker and Fairchild are the other two cards, and given the strength of CI, I probably wouldn't want to see Fairchild unrestricted. Hunter Seeker maybe, given how strong Sakon is at the moment, it might make Wayland a bit better. What do you think about that? Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. I mean... Considering what we're talking about with Wayland decks struggling to get from five or six to seven points before the runner does, having them play Hunter Seeker and GFI would probably be worth trying. Yeah, I mean, sure, Hunter Seeker has the ability to lock the runner out, but I mean, they. I, yeah, I don't think that playing Hunter Seeker 
as your strategy necessarily means it's not like asset spam where I think you really worry about the number of agenda points that are in the corpse deck just because mm. of the number of cards they'll see. With Hunter Seeker, it's not so much because if you're locking them out, then your agendas don't really matter as much. So And it's not so much of a proactive lockout yes. with Hunter Seeker yeah. because of the when stolen condition. Yeah. Um, on the corpse ban list I think we can pretty quickly say that yeah let's not talk about like we've spent enough time talking about those cards yeah. as I always say I think the politicals are probably the biggest mistake in the game cool uh, on the topic of any other cards that could come on to either of these lists yeah um, so I th- oh do you mind no no, no. You, you said that maybe there could be another Haley card added to the restricted list to swap out for Aesop so is there anything in particular that you thought yeah would be a good as I said on Ben Nee's video that his interview that we did together. Um, I think Sackcon is probably the best Haley card to include um, in terms of what you have to give up to play it in your deck, but also what you could play instead. Like if you were to play, for example, Clone Chip instead of Sackcon, I think that would be an interesting decision and would quite significantly weaken the deck while also letting you play different strategies that weren't so reliant on using Clot and Tapworm to lock the runner out of what they wanted to do. So Clone Chip could be your replacement for Levy and Sakon. Yeah, sense. I mean, yeah. it's weaker in weaker a both. lot of... You're weaker yeah. than both in a lot of ways, but that, I think, would be interesting if you had to make that decision. But, of course, that was only if you wanted to put a Haley card on, which I'm not sure is necessary. Like, I feel like it's... it. Sure, I mean, I might have won with it, but it's not like it does something that unbalances the game. Hmm. It's just a sort of very good, very efficient all-round deck. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, how about other runner strategies? I can't... I don't think there's anything else that warrants attention no, at this point. No, I mean... Yeah, you could... Anarch cards? No, I don't think so. Yeah, all the, like, Anarch decks are fairly generic, so restricting one card, I think, would, wouldn't really lead to a huge number of interesting decisions. Like either it would be a weak card that you wouldn't see very much or it would be a strong card that you would replace your other restricted card with. Mm. And how about on the corp side? Um, CI is obviously target number one. Yeah, um, so I think you should probably restrict violet level, ultraviolet level, or both. I don't really think it makes a huge amount of sense to restrict a card other than those just because those are the ones that go in every CI deck and the primary issue, I would say, is with the range of CI decks that are good like the CI core I think brain rewiring is a problem yeah I mean it is strong I just think that like given the experience that we had like the world's metagame is the most prepared group of people for the meta that you'll ever find at a tournament realistically and brain rewiring still came second and the semi-final, like, between Dan and Greg was just a complete walkover. Yes. And Dan was never in that game. But it, I think if you restrict the clearances, it gets hurt a lot more than the other CI decks because it does nothing until you can kill them. Like, mm. if you don't have the card flow, the deck really doesn't work at all. In not like, And that's different to, I think, the hard-hitting news, the fast events decks, all the stints and decks where you can at least try and play a regular remote game with MCA. But if you just restrict the two clearances, you could still play the brain rewriting deck with one clearance. Yeah, but playing one clearance, no GFI in your combo deck, I think, mm. like, sure, if they wanted to do that, then they could do that, and that the deck wouldn't be playable, I think, if you restricted a clearance and brain rewiring. But, I mean, I don't think that only losing Ultraviolet and GFI, for example, would be a huge hit. Okay. Um, and what I don't think hard-hitting news CI definitely necessarily needs no, but any attention, I mean, but the clearance restriction would hit any of the variants. Yes, exactly, yeah. and if that's what they want to do, then I think that's the best way to do it. There's been some calls in various sections of the community for banning CI or restricting CI. What are your thoughts on that? Mm, I mean, I think restricting CI is probably less interesting from a game design perspective and deck building perspective than restricting the clearance. Like, it, it's an interesting deck building decision to say, okay, I'm going to play CI. What restricted card do I want? Do I want to play violet level clearance? Maybe. Do I want to play ultraviolet level clearance? Maybe. Or do I want to do something completely different, try and build a deck that can work without those cards to get to play Estelle Moon, Fairchild, or GFI? 
I think if you restrict the idea itself, you'd lose all of that deck building depth. Hmm. Very cool. Anything else you wanted to say to round out, round out the discussion of the Rudra restricted? I don't think so. I mean, there are lots of things you can do, and I do have faith that something will be done to make the metagame better to those who don't think it's good at the moment, but I think there are a wide variety of things that you could do. It's not an open and shut case at all. Hmm. And I think the the metagame is really quite interesting. It has copped a lot of flack, and obviously there are always going to be good decks, and people are always going to not necessarily enjoy playing against the good decks. Um, but I certainly think that the good decks at the moment are quite interesting, with the exception of Brain Rewiring CI. I think everything else is quite fun netrunner. Yeah. Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 143, The Winning Agenda. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. If you would like to get in touch with us, propose any topics, or give us some feedback in advance of our 150th episode in a few weeks' time. <gasps> yeah, very exciting. Uh, you can email us at thewinningagenda at gmail.com. You can head on to The Winning Agenda on Facebook, or you can tweet us at Winning Agenda. And we're asking listeners and um, everyone in the community who enjoys our podcast to send us through, you know, favorite memories, uh, things you like about the winning agenda, things you enjoy, or things you'd like to say to us, and we'll read them all out on our 150th episode. So yeah. please do. Yeah, get, get excited, hey. Uh, and if you would like to throw a few dollars our way and join our community of Patreon supporters, you can head along to www.patreon.com slash the winning agenda. Uh, until next week, I've been Jesse Marshall here with Wilfie Horrig. Thanks for listening.